0: Good morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here at Dearborn Free Methodist. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Exodus 20, uh, or if you have a phone, you may want to click over to Exodus 20 if you have, the, have a Bible app. We are going to get there in a little while, but first I'd like for us to pray once again together. Father, Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to have ears to hear your Holy Spirit as he teaches us this morning, as he speaks to us this morning through your word. And we just simply ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we love. Amen. So this morning, I'd like to tell you a story. And our story begins where you might expect. It actually begins where all stories begin in the beginning. Yes our story begins with creation or perhaps i should say with the creator god Genesis 1:1 God created the heavens and the earth And as things progress eventually Adam and Eve are created and God gives them a job so to speak he tells them to be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it They kind of establish sort of a close partnership where God and Adam and Eve all share in this task of caring for God's creation. Well, it doesn't last. A lack of trust and maybe a touch of envy lead to terrible consequences for Adam and Eve and all of creation. And this partnership, God and Adam and Eve working together to subdue and rule the earth is dramatically changed. Now, unfortunately, things go from bad to worse, and from worse to wretched. Noah and his family escape in an ark, the floodwaters that God sends to destroy the earth. And when it's over, God establishes a covenant, which is a kind of a formal pledge, that includes conditional promises with Noah and his family. And that covenant is that God says he will never again destroy life on earth. And in Genesis chapter 9, we find the first of God's conditions when he says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The same thing that he told to Adam and Eve. Now, years later... God calls and makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah. He says, I will make you into a great nation with descendants as numerous as the stars and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Through Abraham and Sarah, though they're kind of far from perfect, God initiates and honors his covenant with them. You see, it's God's faithfulness driven by his merciful reconciling healing and restorative love that creates a future that seems guaranteed in this covenant with with Abraham but we find that Abraham and Sarah's descendants are actually incredibly dysfunctional Jacob a birthright a birthright robber himself gets tricked into marrying two sisters, and Abraham's great grandchildren first decide to murder, but then only sell into slavery their youngest brother. But through God's provision, Joseph becomes a high ranking official in Egypt, where he saves his family from starvation. God creates the circumstances through which his covenant promises might still be fulfilled. Time goes by, and the people of Israel multiply. Perceived as a threat, they become slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And that brings us to the part of the story that we've been hearing over the last several weeks. The story of Moses, a burning bush, plagues, and Passover. You see, with a mighty hand, God created a free people from those who had only known slavery all because God was still faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And now they've been released, as Charlton Heston described it, from bitter bondage. They've been liberated. They're free. But now what? How is this newly created people to live together in this newly found freedom. As we've said, they've known nothing but slavery from their birth. Well, Moses leads them to the mountain of God, where they've received instructions to be ready by the third day. And now it is the third day. They've all taken their prescribed places, and then it happens. In Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, we, we read, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now some interpret these words as God authoritatively imposing an obligation on Israel, as if he's saying, I'm the one who freed you. You owe me big time. So you best do what I say if you know what's good for you. Well, in chapter 19 of Exodus, God does say, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. You see, that little word, if, makes all the difference. Listen to what else God says. Then, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, it's not obligation. It's covenant. The covenant with Abraham is being reconfirmed. A kingdom of priests, mediators between people and God. And it's through this kingdom that God will bless all nations. And this kingdom will be treasured by God. You see, he's at it again. He's creating, this time, a nation of priests out of a large group of slaves. But we might ask, well, how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do it by giving them his Torah. That is, literally, his instructions. And what follows in Exodus 20 3 through 17, are what we normally call the Ten Commandments. But Bible scholars like to call it the Decalogue, ten words. (laughs) And these Ten Commandments serve as a sort of executive summary, if you will, of the rest of the instructions that God gives in the following chapters. Let's read verses 3 through 7. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, together, these first three commandments express that the first order of business for the Israelites is to know and be known by God. He's he's described that he is a God of power, of love, and presence. Now, just a few quick observations. A more literal reading of the Hebrew in that first commandment says, there will not be to you God's before me. It's actually as if God's not necessarily commanding. He's actually declaring that the Israelites can now freely and gladly serve God Yahweh alone. In the second commandment, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've gotten stuck on this notion of God's jealousy. Why does he say that sort of thing? Well, actually, God's contrast of his jealousy to his love is is a figure of speech. It's, It's as if God is saying that he's emphasizing that his love is overwhelmingly greater than anything like his jealousy. Now, how do I know that? Well, because in Deuteronomy 24, 16, the directives are that a father doesn't pay for the sin of his children, or children don't pay for the sin of their fathers. Each pays for their own sin. I don't think God would be contradicting himself here. He's emphasizing how much greater his love is than any feelings of jealousy that he might ever have. Now, misusing the name of God, it's not referring to bad or vulgar language. You see, in ancient times, God's name was thought to contain his powerful presence and his purpose. And he's saying here that the Israelites must never try to control God's powerful presence. Rather, the community is to be led by God's presence into a lifetime of submission. Now next, in verses 8 through 11, we find an instruction that functions as a transition between those instructions that focus on God and that focus on others within the community. Let's read verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, and made it holy. Specifically, this teaching calls for the community to follow the example of God given at the time of creation. And in doing so, they will be an example to others of what God is like, that he cares about, and that he cares for his people. He provides them with rest. And now the last six instructions all concern people-to-people interactions. They're all designed to lead to beneficial interrelationships within this covenant community that God is creating. In verses 12 through 17, we read these instructions. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Once again, let's consider just a few quick observations. First of all, this Hebrew word translated as honor specifically means to give weight to. So to honor your parents does not mean to just strictly obey or to always be subordinate. Sorry if that offends any of you parents out there. (laughs) But it does carry the sense of treating your parents with serious respect. You see, in ancient times, this commandment was specifically intended to protect parents from being driven from the home or abused when they were older and no longer able to work. There is continuing debate in the next commandment whether the Hebrew should be translated as murder or just simply kill. See, I tend to lean towards murder as the appropriate translation, but it's also clear that God's concern here is that human life does, in fact, belong to God. And it must always be respected. Now, the prohibition of adultery and stealing are pretty much straightforward. I don't think I have to explain those. (laughs) But here's this instruction concerning false testimony. And I would suggest to you that it was primarily focused on the need for truth in in the covenant community in the sense of having an independent and a healthy judicial system. And this is one of the ways we can also tell easily that these instructions are to establish a covenant community. They're not just for individual obedience. And finally, there's the prohibition of coveting. And this concerns the destructive nature of desire. See, coveting is an action of the heart rather than a physical act. And we might think, well, maybe it doesn't really affect things. But the fact of the matter is that coveting can have very destructive effects in the community. It destroys relationships. And most of us have probably encountered that at some point in our lives. Now, this summary of the lifestyle for God's newly created covenant community, and that's what it is, is set. It's a lifestyle where Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann states, the supreme and legitimate purpose of Israel is to do the will and purpose of Yahweh. You see, the covenant community is created to represent God. We might even say that it's created to bear his image. Now the fact of the matter is, our story really isn't even close to being over at this point. Much goes on in the coming years. But we still see this familiar pattern. There's obedience followed by disobedience. There's good kings followed by bad kings, and this pattern repeats over and over again. But God is still a God of grace. He's still a God of love. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33, God speaks to his people through his prophet. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. the story does, in fact, finally reach what we can call the beginning of the climax. Jesus arrives and once again describes what Dallas Willard has referred to as the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus does teach a new Torah, but it's not necessarily just a new law, per se, but an updated and filled out instruction on living as the people of God. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And even when Jesus seems to be adding to the commandments on murder and adultery, we can see that Jesus is actually applying the principle of coveting, the principle of the condition of one's heart to these particular situations. Jesus is pointing out That inappropriate anger and lust are conditions of the heart that need to be avoided because they can destroy relationships just as surely as those physical acts. Jesus is emphasizing that it's the condition of one's heart that leads to the lifestyle of the people of God. A point that seems to have been lost by Israel as they focused more on literal obedience to the instructions God gave through Moses. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll have to admit that we sometimes do the same thing. We focus on obedience alone. We try hard, oh yes, we try very, very hard to live up to the teachings of Jesus. But much like the people of Israel, we find that we simply can't. But here's the thing. What Jesus proclaimed. What he taught and what he demonstrated wasn't rules for us to follow. It was a lifestyle that we can grow into. Well, actually, that's not quite correct. Uh, it's more correct to say that this culture, this lifestyle that Jesus taught, is one that can grow into us. You see, once again, it's God who faithfully creates another new covenant. We might refer to it as a New Testament, if you will, uh, But this time, it's through his own son in fulfillment of what God spoke through his prophet Jeremiah. You see, there are many ways that this lifestyle can be grown into us. But the major way that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is prayer. And it was a specific prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. But perhaps it should be better known as the Disciples' Prayer because Jesus gives it to the disciples. We know that prayer can certainly grow our relationship with God. But it is true that the disciples' prayer provides a significant framework for our own practice of prayer. But perhaps you might be asking, how'd you get to this disciples' prayer from the Torah and Exodus? What do they really have to do with each other? How do these things actually go together? And why would I actually throw them out there in just a singular teaching or sermon? Well, you see, I think if we compare the two, we can find three distinct similarities. The first similarity is in their priorities. If we look closely, we can see that the priorities built into the Ten Commandments and the disciples' prayer are actually the same. The first priority in both is God. In the Ten Commandments, we find a God who hears, sees, is powerful with a very special name, is jealous, but whose love vastly outweighs his jealousy. He's altogether worthy of worship. In the disciples' prayer, the emphasis is on his loving fatherhood, his special name, and his kingship. And once again, we find that he's altogether worthy of worship. You see, worship is always the priority for God's people. And praying the disciples' prayer gives God the worship described in the Ten Commandments. And since the disciples' prayer provides a framework for our prayer, we can worship God for all all of those characteristics that I just mentioned, and much, much more. Not the least of which is the beauty in God's creation and the beauty of his faithfulness. You see, practicing this worship of God in prayer helps us to internalize that humble, that submissive attitude that's described in both Exodus and in the Sermon on the Mount. The second similarity is that both have a secondary focus or a second priority. And this priority is on practical living. It's easy to recognize the practicality of honoring parents, avoiding murder, adultery, and stealing for a community. And while the disciples' prayer doesn't actually use those, that imperative language, the language of commands, that we find in Exodus 20, asking God for daily needs, to receive forgiveness in the same way that you forgive, and to avoid temptation and evil deeds are all also extremely practical factors for living in community as God's people. And that's kind of the third similarity, its purpose. Both the instruction from God that we find in Exodus 20 and the entire Sermon on the Mount, including what we call the Disciples' Prayer, were given for this same purpose, to live in community. But the instructions in Exodus 20 and the Disciples' Prayer do more than provide for just simply good community living. They provide for the type of life, the culture, and the nature for living as the community of God's people. But even more than that, they lead us to the heart of God. Bible scholar N.T. Wright has described God this way, and I wanted to share it with you because I, I find this just an amazing description that I would love to continue to add into my prayer life. It says, God is the Father, stunningly generous creator, the supremely wise ruler and guide of the nations. He's the Father of Jesus. He's the God who makes promises and keeps them. He's the Lord of the angels. He is the God, He is utterly faithful, utterly loving, utterly determined to bring heaven and earth together in a glorious and fruitful marriage. He is passionately and compassionately involved with his people, with the world, and especially with the poor and needy. I think that we can sum this up by just simply saying, God is always faithful. Now, I think you probably know already that the story that I've been telling this morning, it doesn't really end here. You see, and you're going to be hearing about The story's climax probably over the next few weeks. But that story doesn't even end with the climax. As all great stories do, beyond the climax, the story still continues. But this story continues even to this day. And the amazing thing is that God hasn't changed. Just as he's demonstrated his faithfulness to his people throughout history, and that's what I've been trying to show this morning, a faithful God throughout history. He continues to be faithful to his people today. So I would invite you for some, to commit to maybe one or two of these next steps. The first one is that maybe you will decide that you would like to put your trust in the faithfulness of God. You may be doing that for the hundredth time. You may be doing it for the first time. But the faithfulness of God, I can promise you, will never let you down. We've also talked about the Sermon on the Mount and the disciples' prayer. And one of the ways we can learn to trust more and more in the faithfulness of God is to pray the disciples' prayer. And this prayer, I mean, we've already talked about the Sermon on the Mount kind of being difficult for us to live sometimes. But this prayer, and using the framework of the disciples' prayer, it can help us to have the lifestyle of the sermon grown into us. And in these times, I think it's safe to say we could all benefit from having the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, the nature and the lifestyle of the kingdom of God growing within us. Now, we have prepared a framework, of the disciples' prayer that you can use. And perhaps your next step would be that I, you will pray the framework of the disciples' prayer at least twice a week. And you might ask, well, how can I do that? Well, we are be going to be able to have this framework available to you, and it's available at least in two ways. The first is that you can email me, Pastor Bill at DearbornFMChurch.org. And if you email and ask for the framework of the disciples' prayer, I'll send it to you electronically. Or the other way is that it's going to be posted on our Facebook page, and you can find it there as well. Now, as we close this portion of our worship, I'd like to offer this to you. You see, I pray that in these difficult times that we're all facing together, that the Lord will bless you with good health, that he'll keep you safe, and that his face will shine upon you with peace and, yes, even joy. Will you pray with me one more time? Father, we know that you speak through your word. We know that you speak through your spirit. And sometimes you actually even speak through those of us who follow you. Lord, we ask that we'd all be open to hearing from you in any way that you see fit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.